You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. I used to bite my tongue and hold my breath. This is Trailblazers with Ricky Swanell. Welcome into Trailblazers on SENZ. My name is Ricky Swanell, and my guest today is one of our leading and most successful sports administrators, but she had quite the sporting career herself. Katie Sadlier has been an administrator in numerous areas in New Zealand and then took her talents to the world, world rugby, and now is the head of the Commonwealth Games Federation. Katie Sadlier, welcome to Trailblazers. How are you? I'm really good, Ricky, and it's really good to speak to you again. Yes, so nice. Um, now, look, I need to make sure I get this right, first of all. Born in Scotland with one Australian parent, one Scottish parent, raised in Canada, yep. and you were adopted by and moved to New Zealand at 16. I mean, are you like the ultimate card-carrying Commonwealth person? Well, and there's, a, and there's a few more bits to that story. My grandfather is from South Africa, and my great-grandfather was from Ireland. So, yes, I, I constantly refer to myself as the Commonwealth kid, and it's, it's quite useful in my current role to be able to have those kind of connections amongst the Commonwealth. That is incredible. Um, I, I can imagine the family history. I mean, there's, there's probably a book or something in the family history by the sounds of that. Well, there is a book, but it's actually not about me yet. But there's, there is a book because I go even a bit step further is when I took on the job um, for World Rugby as the general manager of women's rugby and I moved from Wellington up to live in Dublin, I was contacted by a radio station in Cork who were doing a documentary, three-part documentary called The Capture. And it was about my great-great-great-grandfather who was responsible. He was the head of the Victorian police that captured Ned Kelly. So there you go. So there's a few books about him. Oh, my God. I know. It's That's we could talk, we, bigger we, bigger. Oh, we could talk about that instead of talking about sport all day, but we. <laughs> we I know. It's, so it was it was kind of really interesting when I moved to live in Dublin and Ireland for that period of time because he was from um, uh, Tipperary down that part of the woods, and but you know it's kind of funny because Ned Kelly is a bit of a, a hero. It's a bit like Robin Hood. The, the person who captured him isn't quite as has isn't quite as fondly remembered in in the history books. But but yeah, so no, quite a connection from. Um, which is interesting now because, you know, I, I, you know, one of the things we've just done is, is secured the next Commonwealth Games um, beyond Birmingham, which is in Victoria. Um, so when I was down there recently, kind of caught up with some people and we were talking about my, my great-great-grandfather and my connection with um, Victoria. Wow, that is incredible. I mean, when you, I guess you have these, all these different nationalities and cultures, and I'm sure you get asked a lot, do, do you feel the most Kiwi? You were there when you were 16. Like what, you know, where do you feel most yeah. at home? Well, it's a real mixture. I mean, you know, I represented New Zealand um, at the Olympics and the Commonwealth Games and, and um, 
and my brother and my sister are still living there. My daughter, up until six months ago, she was living down in New Zealand, and and my so I kind of had most of my life living in New Zealand, and that's that's definitely um, a part of my of my. Um, uh, something that I hold really, really dear to. But, you know, when I was at the World Cup, I think I saw you at the World Cup in Japan in 2019, you know, we, we kind of looked at all the teams there and I thought I had six countries that could win. <laughs> and one of them did. So, you know, it depends on who's at the top of the table. And then I kind of flip and flop. So I was very South African that day, despite the fact that I was very sorry about the, about the All Blacks. But yeah, definitely, I was a South African. Um, uh, was my uh, my uh, my allegiance on the night? <laughs> uh, yeah, good good to have options though, just in case thing, things go awry. Yeah. So, you, so you moved to um, New Zealand, I think, when you were sixteen. I think moved to the Lower Hutt. Yeah, yeah, Hutt kid. So why did I your did. family move out there? Oh, How did you end up there? Well, my my I mean, my dad was like he was Australian. My mother was Scottish, and I I think that he reached the age of forty and went through that midlife crisis. And they both made a commitment to go. Uh, they put aside a year, and if a job that came up that was attractive, then they would look at it. And so we came out to work for the New Zealand government, or my dad did. He was the director of ecology division at DSIR back then, and then he went on to be the director of science and research for DOC. But yeah, so I, I kind of think I was at that age where. I was always into an adventure. My sister, who competed with me at the Olympics um, in 84, Lynette Sadlier, she didn't come with us right away, but she'd moved down later. But yeah, I, so so it was it was a kind of an interesting period of time to move, though, because it was my last year of high school. But I, I, I've kind of been brought up I'm in, in a family that um, absolutely embraces the world. I mean, I've got family and relatives all over the place. And so I was up for the adventure and my younger brother came with me and my mom and dad. And I did end up going back to university for a little bit in Canada, but then came back and made New Zealand my home for most of my time. Mm. So you mentioned the Olympics, uh, 84, you competed for New Zealand as a synchronized swimmer. How did you find your way to synchronized swimming? Well, that was um, that was definitely something that I started in Canada. Um, and I guess when I started synchronized swimming, Canada was... At that stage, you know, the top three countries in the world were Canada, USA, and Japan. So it kind of rotated around. So it was a reasonably high-profile sport back then. I had started off um, doing a bit of competitive swimming, um, so up and down the pool, looking at the bottom. And and, uh, um, and then I had a, a, a – my sister started synchronized swimming before me, but I my parents always believed in that kind of balanced approach to – um, talent development at a young age. So we tried lots of things. So, you know, I was a, uh, I was a figure skater. I um, was involved in drama and music and dance, you know, kind of did ballet until I was on point. But we, I loved the water. I mean, the water was really cool. And it, it kind of gave you that, uh, that ability to sort of combine both that sport and artistic aspect. Um, so at a really young age, started and, and then kept going through till I guess after the Commonwealth Games in 1986, when I won a bronze medal, so that was kind of really special. But yeah, it's it's a it's a, a sport that um, is incredibly demanding, and it incorporates a whole series of different other disciplines. I think of you know, you see, you had to do the the competitive swimming, the swim strength and training. You had to have the gymnastics ability. I mean, because you you know you have to do the splits in the water, and you've got no weight so you had to be sort of over split um and then it also had that whole kind of um artistic um aspect of it so it was it was a good sport for me but I did go on to play water polo because you know when I did what when I did um 
my role as the general manager for rugby for World Rugby, everyone just made an assumption when I moved to Dublin that I had been a black furnace because everyone who comes out of New Zealand who's working in rugby, of course, has been this elite rugby player. And I had not. But I did play water polo very seriously as well through um, both at my university in Canada, UBC, and then for Wellington, so sort of cross-collegiate water polo. So that was my rugby in the water. I get asked ex- exactly the same thing all the time. So, so who did you play for? Um, very averagely. I'll just do the talking things. <laughs> yeah. Synchronized swimming, as you say, it was being in Canada. It wasn't or hasn't been a sport that's got a, a major foothold in New Zealand. So how did you, I guess, were, were you able to continue it on and, and get to that Olympic level? Well, there were, I mean, when I, when I moved and I was young last year, high school, there were pockets of um, clubs around the country. So it wasn't that it wasn't at all there. I mean, I think that if you went to a, a national championships, that there could have been, a, you know, 150 to 200 different, um, you know, people in different age groups. So it wasn't non-existent, but it was really quite small. And so, I, I mean, I was lucky that, uh, you know, where I moved to in New Zealand, um, Lower Hutt, had a, a reasonably good supply of, um, of swimming pools, both in the Wellington region. So there were a couple of clubs that, that were options for me to, to join. And then I guess I, I kind of quite quickly became um, more than just a swimmer, though, because there was kind of a bit of a gap in the administration and the coaching and the technical aspect of the sport. So I, I kind of, I remember sometimes going to competitions. I want, remember one in particular in in um, Nelson, and it was an outdoor pool, and the wind was blowing umbrellas left, right, and center. But I remember, you know, being a competitor in my age group, and then jumping out and becoming a judge for another age group, and then jumping out and knowing that I had something to do with the group of girls that had come from Lower Hutt. So you, you did become an all rounder at that stage. But then, you know, it, it, it the 1984 Olympics, you know, kind of was the first. Well, actually, it wasn't. It was actually in the Rome Olympics as a demonstration sport. But it was. But '84 was the the first kind of major um, modern games that the Olympics was, that synchronized swimming was on. And and um, I fortunate, was fortunate to go with my sister as my duet partner to LA, uh, and you know really spent. And she became a coach, the national coach of of the team. I became sort of the administrator president. Got on the board of New Zealand Swimming at a really young age. Through that loop, um, that was probably my entry into volunteering and sports management and sports administration. So, you know, it, it certainly created op- opportunities for me to um, develop a really fascinating career. Mm. 84 Olympics, LA, I'm thinking. Was, there, was that a boy? Was that one where there was sort of a bit swirling around and things like that or with the New Zealand team and stuff? Yeah, there was a boycott then and there was a um, – there was a boycott in 86 as well. You know, it's, it's always really sad when, when that kind of thing happens because, you, you know, I, you just fear, feel. And, and, you know, I went on to working in high-performance sport for many, many, many years in New Zealand, and you know how much effort goes into getting to games and when those kind of sort of situations happen for both, for both sides, for both the, the unfortunate teams and countries that are, are unable to compete due to political um, reasons, but also for the the athletes that do compete, who realise that maybe the full field wasn't there, that you didn't get the opportunity to compete against. So it's it's a very challenging environment. Boycotts. Um, so yes, eighty six mm-hmm. and eighty four games both had an element of a, a boycott within it. So eighty six com games, Edinburgh. No, yeah, yes, they were. They were Edinburgh. 
Yes. yes, they definitely were Edinburgh. And and that was really nice for, for me in that, you know, I was born in Aberdeen, you know, that was part of the, the first two years of my life. And my mum came um, from a, a large Scottish family. I think there was 11 aunts and uncles, including including my mum. And most of them, bar one, actually came to watch me compete at the Commonwealth Games. I mean, they, some of them were scattered around Canada as well, but they all came back. So it was really it was really a, a special moment to be there with that extended Glaswegian family um, watching me compete at the Commonwealth Games. It was really That's special. So, so nice. And, and, of course, you won a, won a bronze medal. Um, was that in the joint with your sister again? No, she was my coach at that stage. She was doing her – you know, my sister's a real – brain box. She's a pediatric neurologist and does some really amazing things um, for children with epilepsy around the world. But she was she was definitely well into her medical career. So she was coaching me at the same time as as um, studying. I remember we, we did a quite an extended trip to Europe when we went to um, the Commonwealth Games in Edinburgh. We did some pre-competitions in, in Switzerland and we also went down to the World Aquatic Games in Spain and she had to carry, I just remember those stories back then, she was carrying all these medical textbooks so that she could keep up with her study. I was just a full-time athlete, but she was certainly still doing her medicine from Otago University and um, coaching me at the same time. Wow. Uh, different world, isn't it? Um, but, but winning that bronze medal, I mean, can you describe like what, that moment and, and standing on that podium and, and I kind of guess that achievement? Yeah, I, I mean, it was... I mean, it was amazing. I mean, it was amazing for both of us. Um, you know, both the coach and the athlete always get the, the and my 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 mum. Unfortunately, my, my father couldn't come and my father, and my brother. I always remember sort of connecting them with them afterwards and, uh, you know, kind of sharing the sharing the joy from afar. But it was a really special um, sort of situation for me. Um, I then went on down to the World Aquatic Games and unfortunately I got quite sick. Um, I mean, I did OK, but it was it was one of those sort of situations where I remember um, thinking, what am I doing sitting at the side of the swimming pool when I was kind of really not well? But yeah, no, Edinburgh was really special. Um, it was uh, it was a great team, and I look at a lot of the the people that were uh, competing. A lot of the athletes that actually competed with me, both in '84 and and in '86, went on to some really interesting careers in sports management. So so you know, it was a, it was a great place to meet a lot of professional colleagues that I've had all my life. Um, but also to be able to achieve um, on in the water, um, something that was an aspiration for myself. Amazing. My guest today on Trailblazers is Katie Sadlier, back with more in a moment. World Rugby Roll, I think you took over just after the 2017 World Cup. It was a newly established, is it global head of women's rugby or something, a very, very highfalutin title? Yeah, it was it was a pretty cool title. I mean, it, it was it was actually before the World Cup. I I um, accepted the role in September two sixteen, and I moved to Dublin in January two seventeen. So six months in, um, hit the first my first experience at a World Cup, which was in Ireland, um, in both you know a mixture of, of Northern Ireland and, and Ireland, Belfast and Dublin. Um, but yeah, my title was General Manager Women's Rugby World Rugby, and when people ask me what I did. I sort of said, well, you know, it's got to be one of those amazing jobs. I go around the world working with organizations to um, make sure that there are pathways and programs in place to grow the game. And I got to do some absolutely amazing things during that time. You know, I think my first I think my first um, serious meeting for World Rugby was in Buenos Aires. And I went along to a council meeting. And that was at the stage where the council was made of 30 men. And I remember I went out for dinner with these guys and they said, 
um, oh, you're the first time we've had a woman come along to the, the, to the evening. It was really bizarre. And I was told very, very um, um, from Gus Pichot, who was the vice president at the time, that, you know, he was absolutely going to back everything that I did, but women weren't going to play rugby in South America. And that, that, you know, they were going to, there was a scattering of sevens, which was all about, you know, the Olympics and, but 15s, not, nah, you, you go into a club and, South America and it's a ho- and it's a club and the women go to the right and that's called hockey and the men go to the left and that's called rugby and that we wouldn't see the growth of the 15s game. Well, if you look at the qualification process for this World Cup in New Zealand, Rugby World Cup in New Zealand, and how Colombia, you know, qualified and well, didn't quite hasn't qualified for the World Cup but got to go through two stages as a 15s um, program, um, you know, beating Kenya uh, and. And that you now look at rugby, because one of my real objectives was to, um, it was about women in rugby. It wasn't about women's rugby. So my role was not just on field getting more women play. It was getting women into leadership positions. And in um, in South America now, unless there's been a change since I've left, but you have um, women chief executives in Argentina, Brazil, and Colombia for all of rugby, not for women's mm-hmm. rugby. So we did, we did a lot to really grow and change the makeup and look and feel off field and on field uh, for, for rugby. So it was a fantastic job. Fantastic job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there one thing that you're most proud of, of, of in that role or one thing that really stands out? Cause it was, I mean, it was pretty big in scope. I know it was really, you know, I, I think there were so many, what I call, Sir Edmund Hillary moments, not the bastard off. I had some pretty big lists. You know, I had five pillars um, of change that I wanted to, you know, what it was about growing participation. It was, it was about improving performance. I mean, now that now, you know, we've got the stage where Nikki Ponsford, ex high performance director of English rugby works full time developing the women's game. So having that, that kind of leadership, creating that new competition, um, you know, WXB, that's kind of game changer in terms of, of women's 15s. The leadership stuff, you know, I talked about it, you know, changing the governance structure, um, you know, really, really putting an emphasis on women in leadership positions. We ran a scholarship program and and where we we worked with people who were identified as potential leaders and and watching those that network of women grow. Most of them are going down to New Zealand to the well, definitely to the Rugby World Cup where they will run a. Uh, a forum on on women's rugby, but then on to the IWG. So I think there's about 49 women leaders going down there. Um, but, you know, I think that we did some big stuff on campaigns. I ran two global campaigns, one Try and Stop Us, which was really successful, identifying really, really amazing women around the world who were doing great stuff in rugby. And then the other one, um, which is on, on right now with um, um, – uh, the Rugby World Cup, that's a pretty cool cool one as well. But I think probably one of the biggest things that will make a big change to rugby was um, revisiting the commercial strategy for the women's game. Up until up until two or three years ago, the women's sponsorship was just kind of wrapped up into the men's sponsorship. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you, you sponsor the men's World Cup and then you got thrown in, oh, you can also have the woman or the under-20s. And we made a strategic call that women's rugby was important enough to be on its own. And it could stand up commercially. And yes, it would take time to actually build that commercial profile, but that we would do that. And and probably when we secured our first global partnership in MasterCard, um, which was linked to our, our campaign, it really made me think, hey, that was a big, big call, but it was the right call. And 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 now, you know, that that whole kind of commercial program for the women's game is evolving. And that just means that, 
you know, that if you can do it globally, you can do it now at a, a local level as well. So I think that mm. there's, I mean, there was lots of really, 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 really um, great things to leave behind, I think, in terms of my five-year stint. Um, even changing the name of Rugby World Cup to Rugby World Cup. That sounds really quite funny, but, you know, it used to be the Women's World Cup. And and there was a, it, there was a, a real decent discussion paper about what did that really mean you know it, it kind of there was a perception that there was the rugby world cup and there was the women's rugby world cup and that that was a that was the second product and we kind of just shifted that whole perception in terms of the investment in in how we were going to market the event and how we were going to get behind the event um, and that we were going to have gender neutral names for our tournaments from now on hmm. i would imagine that there would have been frustrations and brick walls though Yes, yes. I mean, you know, I, but I, I kind of took it on at an interesting, I'm not young. I mean, I'm 57. And I moved to Dublin just when I was 50, sort of when I went to the other side of the world. And I remember, I remember in my interview for the job, I was interviewed clearly by people at World Rugby, like Brett Gosper and, you know, a couple of other great guys. But I also was interviewed by and the chief executive of Australian rugby at the time, who's a guy called Bill Pulver, who was, you know, pre, pre Raylene. And I, I remember him sitting down, we had a, a whole day and he said, you know, Katie, it's not going to be the world of rugby that's going to challenge you. It's going to be working at world rugby that's going to challenge you. And I didn't really actually understand what that meant. And I mean, and I guess what I learned really quickly is I had never had, and I deliberately put myself out there to take on a woman's sport role because I believed when I saw what rugby was doing globally and the growth that had come out of the Olympics and the huge opportunity to empower women in, in the non-traditional rugby markets. I mean, you know, one would not grab a job like that, but you know, when you work in any organization that the organization you work in is a microcosm of the world. And so you've got people that really get it, love it, and will do, you know, men and women will do everything they can to support you. Then you've got some people who, you know, declare they don't think women should play rugby. It's not for, you know, it's it's too physical or it's too, 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 whatever. But, you know, you know who they are. And then you've got the people in between that flip and flop depending on which room they're in. And that's the kind of politics. And so any organizations like that. So, you know, you, you know, I, I, I kind of back myself as a, a person who can um, uh, drive real, meaningful, sustainable change inside organizations. So you kind of pick your battles and you. You um, invest heavily in stakeholder engagement uh, and and understanding what are the big, you know, who are the people that you need to influence to actually get you to that next stage. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be the person who's fronting fronting the discussion or the decision to change, but you need to make sure that you, you know enough about internal politics that you can get people into the right space to actually drive that change. And so, yeah, I mean, World Rugby is, is like most international federations, some absolutely fantastic people. And, and what I can say is the transformation that we saw in the first five years, and I know the, the um, wonderful lady who's taken on the job since I've left will take it to the next level. So it's certainly on the, on the right path. And I think we, we got there faster than some of the other IFs, um, but there's still a way to go. Mm. What do you, obviously we've got the World Cup coming in New Zealand uh, in October. What do you hope for that tournament? Well, well, I know, I, like I caught up, I was in New Zealand just recently and I went out um, for dinner with a bunch of, um, actually, uh, they were, they were, it was Raylene Castle that had set up the dinner. So it was a bunch of, of, of women who have leading positions in, in sport. Um, and and um, Dame Judy Christie was there and who I think is absolutely awesome. 
uh, and who took on the role as as um, leading this this exercise, you know, with Michelle Hooper. I mean, it's a great team of people, and you know, and um, Alison Hughes back in, in in at World Rugby. So they've been working on. They've had they've had to deal with lots of challenges in terms of mm-hmm. of, of COVID and the additional costs and um, and you know postponements. Um, and it's a long way away. Although New Zealand loves loved rugby. Um, and so I think that I think that the forum that w- that happens at the time of the World Cup will be really special because we've spent. Sorry, I'm not there anymore. But I, you know, whilst I was there, we invested so much in in developing the leaders, and they're all going to come together. And when you create that kind of opportunity where um, inspirational women get together and men, you know, lots and lots of very inspirational men who are driving the game as well. Um, when when they you know Sir Simon was the chair of the women's advisory committee who, who's you know way up there in the French rugby world and he's a, a, an absolute passionate women's rugby supporter um, so the forum I think will be will be exceptional but you know I, I kept thinking about the you know the aim and the to get the um, Eden Park sold out for the first game I think that would be pretty impressive for the women's game as well um, but you know overall there's just going to be some absolutely kind of eye-watering rugby played and the, the game has got better and better and better and uh you know I, I was kind of paying attention it's kind of funny because you pay attention you think oh yes that's what I used to do you know I might get called up by a player sending sending called me up the other day and said okay oh, you want to come along to the barbarians game or I was having a look at um Emily um Bidewell's notes from the pack four stuff and you're thinking there's a lot going on now and that's just lifting the the standard of the um, the on-field performance. So I think you're going to see some absolutely amazing rugby, and I'm going to be there. So I'm, I'm hoping, I've been asked if I would be a speaker at the IWG um, conference, and, and given my current role and working um, very closely, obviously, with Victoria, um, I'm definitely planning on, on taking in some rugby in New Zealand. Excellent. O2 have been a fly on their wall at that dinner a few weeks ago. Um, We will get, though, because you've got another very big event coming up. We'll have one more quick break, and then we'll talk Commonwealth Games in Birmingham coming up shortly with Katie Sadlier. The other committees, but there's certainly, you know, that there's been a recent review well, just before I left in terms of ensuring that there is um, far more gender diversity across the the various committees of World Rugby. But, but, you know, it's hard when you come from, um, you know, a sport that – you know, and we shouldn't say this anymore, traditionally male dominated, because you have got such a huge growth area. But, you know, it's it's that kind of entry level at clubs and stuff like that, where people are making decisions about facility use and 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 some of the basic kind of um, decisions that are made about whether or not you have female um, toilets and changing areas versus males are, are things that impact on women's participation in sport. But at a governance level, the world is changing. I mean, the IOC drives a, um, a specific agenda in terms of balance on international federations. Um, and as do a lot of the, um, quite rightly, the investors in sports. So the the, um, the Sport and Recreation New Zealand's, mm-hmm. the UK Sports, the Australian Sports Commission, who put quotas on international federation, uh, sorry, on domestic um, competition, um, domestic organisings. And, and that's linked to funding. So if you, you have a certain year to get yourself, your ship in, ship in order. That was ship in order. Um, so yeah, you meant, <laughs> that was definitely ship in order. So I think that the world is changing. Uh, is it changing fast enough? Hmm, that's interesting. Like you know, I, I think that still having to put forward that business case is 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 bizarre. I I know, and I'm not, probably not the first person that says this that. 
but I have been what they call the first in this, the first woman who does this, the first one. And I thought, it, won't it be nice if we don't talk about the first woman to do something for a while? Because, you know, really, at the end of the day, it just makes sense that, you know, that that those kind of barriers are broken down and the unconscious bias is removed, but it still exists. But mm-hmm. I would say from a Commonwealth Games movement perspective and the organization that I work for right now, it's um, definitely in the right place. Mm-hmm. We'll come back in a moment and talk about some of those roles into the nitty gritty with Katie Sedley and my guest on Trailblazers. Stay with us on SCNZ. Thanks for being with us on Trailblazers. I'm Ricky Swanell and my guest is Katie Sadley. We were chatting just moments ago about your, your World Rugby role and your Commonwealth Games Federation. So just to, to clarify, so your World Rugby role, I think you took over just after the 2017 World Cup. It was a newly established, is it Global Head of Women's Rugby or something, a very, very highfalutin title? Yeah, it was it was a pretty cool title. I mean, it, it was it was actually before the World Cup. I I um, accepted the role in September two sixteen, and I moved to Dublin at January two seventeen. So six months in, um, hit the first my first experience at a World Cup, which was in Ireland, um, in both you know a mixture of, of Northern Ireland and, and Ireland, Belfast and Dublin. Um, but yeah, my title was General Manager Women's Rugby World Rugby. And when people ask me what I did. I said, I said, well, you know, it's got to be one of those amazing jobs. I go around the world working with organizations to um, make sure that there are pathways and programs in place to grow the game. And I got to do some absolutely amazing things during that time. You know, I think my first I think my first um, serious meeting for World Rugby was in Buenos Aires. And I went along to a council meeting. And that was at the stage where the council was made of 30 men. And I remember I went out for dinner with these guys and they said, um, oh, you're the first time we've had a woman come along to the, the, to the evening. It was really bizarre. And I was told very, very um, um, from Gus Pichot, who was the vice president at the time, that, you know, he was absolutely going to back everything that I did, but women weren't going to play rugby in South America. And that, that, you know, they were going to, there was a scattering of sevens, which was all about, you know, Olympics. And, but 15s, not, nah, you, you go into a club and, South America, and it's a ho- and it's a club, and the women go to the right, and that's called hockey, and the men go to the left, and that's called rugby, and that we wouldn't see the growth of the 15s game. Well, if you look at the qualification process for this World Cup in New Zealand, Rugby World Cup in New Zealand, and how Colombia, you know, qualified and well, didn't quite hasn't qualified for the World Cup, but got to go through two stages as a 15s um, program, um, you know, beating Kenya uh, and. And that you now look at rugby, because one of my real objectives was to, um, it was about women in rugby, it wasn't about women's rugby. So my role was not just on field getting more women play, it was getting women into leadership positions. And in um, in South America now, unless there's been a change since I've left, but you have um, women chief executives in Argentina, Brazil and Colombia for all of rugby, not for women's mm-hmm. rugby. So we did, we did a lot to really grow and change the makeup and look and feel off field and on field uh, for, for rugby. So it was a fantastic job. Fantastic job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there one thing that you're most proud of, of, of in that role or one thing that really stands out? Cause it was, I mean, it was pretty big in scope. I know it was really, you know, I, I think there were so many, what I call, Sir Edmund Hillary moments, not the bastard off. I had some pretty big lists. You know, I had five pillars um, of change that I wanted to, you know, it was about growing participation. It was 
It was about improving performance. I mean, now that now, you know, we've got the stage where Nikki Ponsford, ex high performance director of English rugby works full time developing the women's game. So having that, that kind of leadership, creating that new competition, um, you know, WXV, that's kind of game changer in terms of, of women's 15s. The leadership stuff, you know, I talked about it, you know, changing the governance structure, um, you know, really, really putting an emphasis on women in leadership positions. We ran a scholarship program and, and where we, we worked with people who were identified as potential leaders and, and watching those, that network of women grow. Most of them are going down to New Zealand to the, well, definitely to the Rugby World Cup where they will run a, uh, a forum on, on women's rugby, but then on to the IWG. So I think there's about 49 women leaders going down there. Um, but, you know, I think that we did some big stuff on campaigns. I ran two global campaigns, one Try and Stop Us, which was really successful, identifying really, really amazing women around the world who were doing great stuff in rugby. And then the other one, um, which is on on right now with um, um, uh, the Rugby World Cup. That's a pretty cool, cool one as well. But I think probably one of the biggest things that will make a big change to rugby was um, revisiting the commercial strategy for the women's game up until – up until two or three years ago, the women's sponsorship was just kind of wrapped up into the men's sponsorship. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you you sponsor the men's World Cup and then you got thrown in. Oh, you can also have the woman or the under 20s. And we made a strategic call that women's rugby was important enough to be on its own and it could stand up commercially. And yes, it would take time to actually build that commercial profile, but that we would do that. And and probably when we secured our first global partnership in MasterCard, um, which was linked to our, our campaign, it really made me think, hey, that was a big, big call, but it was the right call. And 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 now, you know, that, that whole kind of commercial program for the women's game is evolving. And that just means that, you know, that if you can do it globally, you can do it now at a, a local level as well. So I think that mm. there's, I mean, there was lots of really, 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 really um, great things to leave behind, I think, in terms of my five-year stint. Um, even changing the name of Rugby World Cup to Rugby World Cup. That sounds really quite funny, but, you know, it used to be the Women's World Cup. And and there was a it, there was a, a real decent discussion paper about what did that really mean? You know, it, it kind of there was a perception that there was the Rugby World Cup and there was the Women's Rugby World Cup and that that was, a, that was the second product. And we kind of just shifted that whole perception in terms of the investment and in how we were going to market the event and how we were going to get behind the event um, and that we were going to have gender-neutral names for our tournaments from now on. I would imagine that there would have been frustrations and brick walls, though. Mm, yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, you know, I but I, I kind of took it on at an interesting – I'm not young. I mean, I'm 57. And I moved to Dublin just when I was 50, sort of went and went to the other side of the world. And – I remember, I remember in my interview for the job, I was interviewed clearly by people at World Rugby, like Brett Gosper and you know a couple of other great guys. But I also was interviewed by the chief executive of Australian Rugby at the time, who's a guy called Bill Pulver, who was you know pre pre Raylene. And I remember him sitting down. We had a, a whole day, and he said, you know, Katie, it's not going to be the world of rugby that's going to challenge you. It's going to be working at World Rugby that's going to challenge you. And I didn't really actually understand what that meant. And I mean, and I guess what I learned really quickly is that I had never had, and I deliberately put myself out there to take on a woman's sport role because I believed when I saw what rugby was doing globally and the growth that had come out of the Olympics and the huge opportunity to empower a woman in, 
in the non-traditional rugby markets. I mean, no one would not grab a job like that. But you know when you work in any organization that the organization you work in is a microcosm of the world. And so you've got people that really get it, love it, and will do, you know, men and women will do everything they can to support you. Then you've got some people who, you know, declare they don't think women should play rugby. It's not for, you know, it's it's too physical or it's too, 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 whatever. But, you know, you know who they are. And then you've got the people in between that flip and flop depending on which room they're in. And that's the kind of politics. And so any organizations like that. So, you know, you, you know, I, I, I kind of back myself as a, a person who can um, uh, drive real, meaningful, sustainable change inside organizations. So you kind of pick your battles and you... You um, invest heavily in stakeholder engagement uh, and and understanding what are the big, you know, who are the people that you need to influence to actually get you to that next stage. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be the person who's fronting fronting the discussion or the decision to change, but you need to make sure that you you know enough about internal politics that you can get people into the right space to actually drive that change. And so, yeah, I mean, World Rugby is, is like most international federations. Some absolutely fantastic people. And, and what I can say is the transformation that we saw in the first five years, and I know the, the um, wonderful lady who's taken on the job since I've left will take it to the next level. So it's certainly on the, on the right path. And I think we, we got there faster than some of the other IFs, um, but there's still a way to go. Mm. What are you, obviously we've got the World Cup coming in New Zealand uh, in October. What do you hope for that tournament? Well, well, I know. I, like I caught up. I was in New Zealand just recently, and I went out um, for dinner with a bunch of. Um, actually, uh, they were they were. It was Raylene Castle that had set up the dinner, so it was a bunch of of, of women who have leading positions in in sport. Um, and and um, Dame Julie Christie was there, and who I think is absolutely awesome, uh, and who took on the role as as um, leading this this exercise. You know, with Michelle Hooper. I mean, it's a great team of people, and. You know, and um, Alison Hughes back in, in, in at World Rugby. So they've been working on. They've had they've had to deal with lots of challenges in terms of mm-hmm. of, of COVID and the additional costs and um, and you know postponements. Um, and it's a long way away. Although New Zealand loves loves rugby, um, and so I think that I think that the forum that w- that happens at the time of the World Cup will be really special because we've spent. Sorry, I'm not there anymore. But I, you know, whilst I was there, we invested so much in in developing the leaders, and they're all going to come together. And when you create that kind of opportunity, where um, inspirational women get together and men, you know, lots and lots of very inspirational men who are driving the game as well. Um, when when they, you know, Sir Simone was the chair of the women's advisory committee, who, who's you know way up there in the French rugby world, and he's a, a, an absolute passionate women's rugby supporter. Um, so the forum, I think, will be will be exceptional. But, you know, I, I kept thinking about the, you know, the aim and the to get the um, Eden Park sold out for the first game. I think that would be pretty impressive for the women's game as well. Um, but, you know, overall, there's just going to be some absolutely kind of eye-watering rugby played. I think the game has got better and better and better. And, uh, you know, I, I was kind of paying attention. It's kind of funny because you pay attention and think, oh, yes, that's what I used to do. You know, I might get called up by a player, sending, sending, called me up the other day and said, oh, can you want to come along to the Barbarians game? Or I was having a look at um, Emily um, Bidewell's notes from the Pac-4 stuff. And you're thinking, there's a lot going on now. And that's just lifting the, the standard of the, um, the on-field performance. So I think you're going to see some absolutely amazing rugby. And I'm going to be there. 
So I'm, I'm hoping, I've been asked if I would be a speaker at the IWG um, conference and, and given my current role and working um, very closely, obviously with Victoria, um, I'm definitely planning on, on taking in some rugby in New Zealand. Excellent. O2 have been a fly on their wall at that dinner a few weeks ago. Um, we will get, though, because you've got another very big event coming up. We'll have one more quick break and then we'll talk Commonwealth Games in Birmingham coming up shortly with Katie Sadlier. You're listening to Trailblazers on SCNZ. I've been chatting today about the sporting life on and off the field of Katie Sadlier from the, well, from now the Commonwealth Games Federation, the head of, well, you said what you started at World Rugby six months before the last World Cup in 2017 and now you've started at the Commonwealth Games Federation. And what is it just about six months before the Birmingham Games now? Yeah. Um, I mean, what a role to take on. Why did you want to move on from rugby on and onto the CGF role? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I guess I'd always thought that you could stay in a role too long. I mean, it depends on who you are. I'm kind of a transformational change kind of person. And, and I felt, I, I think I probably felt that I was always going to move on from world rugby after the World Cup if I could drive some significant change and, you know, I did get to the stage where we reviewed the strategy, so it was all set up for the next five years. So that that was kind of like a tick. But this job came up, and I sort of thought, you know, look, I we talked at the beginning about me being a Commonwealth kid, and and then and then I talked about the fact that I've actually participated in six Commonwealth Games. It was almost like going home, um, you know. And so when the opportunity came up to put my name in the hat, I thought, well, you know, why wouldn't you? I mean, it's it's a huge global job. I mean, it's much, much bigger than I, I initially anticipated because it's not just the games. We've got 72 members. We have a movement. So, you know, it's all about using sport for social change. We do quite a lot of work with with um, a variety of, you know, leadership development around around the Commonwealth. And then we have these big games that happen once every four years plus the youth games and 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 then other Commonwealth Championships. So it's quite a a, a, a a wide portfolio of what I'm accountable for. But you know, arriving when I arrived, you're quite right. You know, the, the majority of the work, although you know, there's there's still you know we meet um, you know at least once a week, if not sometimes twice a week on Birmingham. So I'm I'm on the you know this chief executives board for Birmingham, um, and. Uh, you know, it's and it has been an incredibly challenging time in terms of delivering what will be the first multi-sport major games with full stadium in a COVID mm-hmm. environment. So lots and lots of um, challenging things. So, you know, Birmingham, they, they have a, a, a slogan, the city, bring it on Birmingham. And they really it's it's kind of like tackle things, um, you know, squarely on in terms of what they can do to you know, to address some of the challenges that presented themselves. But at the same time as developing Birmingham, which is just around the corner, you know, when I arrived at the games uh, here, we didn't have a 2026 lined up. It was a really interesting dilemma in that the games for 2022 was actually supposed to be in Durban in South Africa. And, you know, it, it was pulled because of a, of, of a variety of reasons. And um, England put up its hand and said, hey, we'll, we'll step forward. We'll go from 26 to 22 and we'll, we'll do the Birmingham Games. Well, they went through a, um, a tender between Liverpool and Birmingham. Birmingham got the Games. But what that meant was we then went straight, straight into COVID. So we didn't have anything lined mm-hmm. up for 2026. That was my, you know, to be honest, I've been in the role for six months now. My first four months was really working hard to secure 2026. So get that over the line because that is our, significant income stream so getting that over line so i've got birmingham i've got less than four years to victoria rather than seven or eight years and i kicked off a brand new strategic planning process this year with the aim to 
we've got a transformation 2022, which finishes in, in November. So I'm driving a, a really integrated um, uh, stakeholder engagement process to develop the next strategy for 2023 to 2034. So I am a tad busy, but you know, Birmingham <laughs> is going to be great. It's going to be absolutely great. There's lots and lots of, you know, we, we talked about firsts for women. I don't, I don't, you know, and I sort of said, oh, that's, that's kind of a bit old, but there are a lot of firsts that are happening in this games in terms of, you know, like we talked about more, more um, uh, women than men's uh, medals, we've put in place things like an athlete advocacy framework, which is really quite unique, where we've we've kind of recognized that athletes are agents of change and we're supporting them to for freedom of speech and and, and seeing what we can do with our um, really committed athletes commission to to actually support the athlete movement. Um, we've got it's, it's the first um, carbon neutral games. There are I you know I think that was one of the first presentations I went to and I thought, wow, this is cool, where they're planting uh, a Commonwealth forest to offset the carbons and there is 2,022 um, hectares of trees being planted plus a lot of mini forests. Um, there is just a whole series of things that are being put in place. There's a six-month cultural program and I'm, I'm really into, into the cultural aspect of mixing sport and, and art and that's been absolutely fantastic. And we're going to have, you know, four and a half thousand athletes in 19 sports um, uh, from 72 nations coming to Birmingham to absolutely um, demonstrate excellence in sport performance. Do you, that's interesting about the sort of athletes' voices. We've seen athletes are becoming and, and willing to use their platforms on whatever political subject, and there's a lot going on in the world at the moment. Do you expect that that is going to be really prominent at these games? I don't know. You know, I mean, I guess what we're saying is that we have a, a an athlete's Commission who have developed, you know, well, with us, it's part of our um, our code of conduct, but have developed an athlete advocacy policy framework, and it kind of articulates um, uh, what is what we expect to see in terms of things that might happen um, on the field of play or people having their voice. I mean, we we have. I mean, one of our big programs at this Commonwealth Games, it sort of started in 2018 where we invested in Pride House, but we have a, we've established a Commonwealth Pride Network um, and have been doing a lot of work in the LGBTQ community um, in terms of when you see Birmingham, you will see a, a lot of Pride flags and Pride merchandising and that whole kind of um, avenue to um, for athletes to come together and to talk about things that are important to them in a safe space. So, I mean, I, it'll, it'll be interesting to see um, um, who does what, but mm. what we're sort of saying is as long as there's respect and that it doesn't um, break the code of conduct um, in terms of, you know, the charter of good behavior, then it's something that, that we are happy to support as opposed to saying you can't do that. So that's, that's quite a, um, a different approach, I think. Um, but we'll see how it goes and we'll evaluate it at the end of it. And the other really exciting thing that we're doing, um, which I think I'm really excited to buy, is we did a real big review of, of the Commonwealth Games saying that we needed to make sure that it was more relevant to the, to, um, the, the youth of the Commonwealth, which you know, 2.7 billion people in the Commonwealth, 60% are under the age of 30. So we are running the first ever um, Commonwealth Esports Championships at the same time as the Games. It's a separate event. It's not a Commonwealth medal event, but it's taking place in Birmingham um, for three days, the last three days of the Games. And we have, um, I think actually today, I got a tweet from Paul Foster, the Global Esports 
uh, CEO telling me that it was there was about to be the final qualification round off between New Zealand and Australia for the place representing Oceania. So we're really excited to see where that is. It's a pilot and it's a long term partnership we have with esports. Um, but you know, it's it's and that that is something that can sometimes be controversial as to whether it's a sport or not a sport. But we're trying to make sure that we are an organization that embraces innovation and 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 um, and and take some some risks. And we are really enjoying our relationship with the Global Esports Federation. Cool. Yeah, I mean, because I guess the obvious question is, is that the Commonwealth Games, in some view, is it's an an anachronism. Use your words, um, and you know the future of the monarchy and all of those kind of things. Um, you know, what is the future therefore of of the CGF beyond these games beyond Victoria? Yeah. Well, I think you know, I think COVID and the situation we had with um, with Durban and bringing forward the games and being in a challenging situation of not having a host gave us the opportunity to pause and to reflect on who we were as an organization and where we wanted to position ourselves. And we did this, this huge piece of work called the 2630 Roadmap, which basically said we needed to, we needed to um, embrace the future. We needed to think more creatively and innovatively about the sports that are on the program um, and that we needed to work more with hosts to be something that was maybe was quite unique in terms of what was the product. Um, the whole inclusive nature of the Commonwealth Games, having para-athletes as part of the program as opposed to outside of the program, I think is, is one of those unique factors. But if you look at Victoria in, um, in Australia, I mean, the reason that they put forward and came to us to say we're really keen to to host a games is because we did open ourselves up to be much more flexible. So we've, we've moved from a games that will be take place in one city in to say, actually, you can have multi-sites. Um, that is a regional games. It's our first of, of a regional game. So four hubs with, um, with sports specific uh, hubs and villages, really quite unique, but definitely works towards um, supporting the government of Victoria and their regional economic um, growth. But we see that as happening you know, even taking that further, that there could be countries that host a game, so it doesn't have to be a city, or that it could be two or three countries. I mean, I'd love to see an African Games or a, a Caribbean Games where two or three countries get together. We look at the countries that have got some specific uh, sport development, sport social change programs that they want to initiative initiate over a longer period of time, whether it's facility development or sports policies, and we work with them to actually um, come in 10 years out and start getting them ready to have a combined kind of games. So we're, we're definitely trying to unpick and look at what we've done. And it's it's not about throwing away the past because there's some excellent sports and excellent traditions that, that are associated with the Commonwealth Games. But we also, we, we want to include sports like you'll see in Birmingham, three-on-three basketballs and, you know, potentially in the future, maybe um, netball fast fives and, you know, just trying to kind of sort of change the program, mix it up a bit and make sure that it's an attractive and um, appealing product for our fans and new commercial partners. On that, and I don't know if you'll be allowed to answer this, could or would you encourage New Zealand to be a host of the Commonwealth Games once again, maybe in 2030? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, as the chief executive of the Commonwealth Federation, I ha- my, my answer would be I am encouraging all of the 72 countries to, to consider um, the Games. But, you know, I mean, I, I do come from New Zealand. I come from Canada. Well, I mean, we talked about where I've come from. So there could be a few Commonwealth countries that, that I could be perceived to have a conflict of interest in. But, you know, I, I participated in the Games in, in 1990. It seems like a long time ago. 
Um, so by all means, um, I would be encouraging New Zealand to look um, at the new model that we have in place, which um, it could be a country bid uh, rather than one city taking taking on the responsibility lead. Um, but it would be lovely to see a Games in New Zealand again. On that note, we will leave it there. Katie, thank you. So it's been so fun and interesting and entertaining and all the very best for, for Birmingham and beyond. Um, thank you so much, Katie Sadlier, for being on Trailblazers. Thank you, Ricky.